Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Dwayne Ayora. So it is nice to be here. It's my very first time to visit and it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, before we do begin, I just ask that you'll bow your heads with me as I open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just want to pause for a moment to ask that you will send the Holy Spirit to, uh, to give us spiritual veins so that the blood that runs from our head down to our toes, Lord, would be filled with your word, that we will be encouraged and inspired in the ministry of Jesus and how he treats sinners. May we learn today to have the grace of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for the, uh, the scripture reading this morning. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to uh, that, that is actually our, our concluding text. Uh, but I decided to start with it and then we will conclude with it. And it does say in John chapter 8 and verse 12... Uh, that he said to them, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness. Have you ever walked in the dark? It's not, it, it can pose quite a challenge um, when you walk in the dark because you can walk into things, you can stumble across things, you can even trip over things. Um, I got up one night to go to the toilet, it was the middle of the night, walked trying to be quiet, you know, didn't want to wake up the children or the wife, and I walked straight into the fan, fell over, the fan went, went everywhere, and it was just a total disaster. Had I turned the light on, would not have happened, um, but I'd forgotten that I'd put, the, it was a hot summer's day, and I'd stuck the fan at the end of my bed, of course, I'll go to bed that night and forgot that I'd even put it there and just made one heck of a noise. So it does pose a challenge when you walk in darkness, and sometimes we think we're okay in the dark, but when we're really not doing okay. We think we're fine, but it's not fine. And so Jesus said, uh, I am the light of the word. He that follows me, of the world, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What caused Jesus to say those words? Well, of course, in order to understand the concluding text for today's study, we need to back it up a little bit just so we can understand it. There is a story to it, and then we'll conclude with that text. In the previous chapter, in chapter 7, we know that the Jews had lots of feasts. They had a feast for this, they had a feast for that, they had a feast, you know, because they had come out of Egyptian um, uh, captivity and, uh, or bondage, uh, slavery, um, it was their way of, of commemorating what God had done for them in the wilderness. And so they had, even on the night that they departed Egypt, uh, that became known as the, uh, as the Passover feast. And, um, and so they had the Feast of Sabbaths, the Feast of New Moons, and Feast of Trumpets, etc. Uh, and so they were celebrating the, the, the Passover feast, uh, sorry, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, or the Feast of Booths, as some translations may put it. And they would celebrate for seven days, and then on the eighth day, it was considered the high day, especially if it fell on the Sabbath day, um, that was the high Sabbath. 
Um, but of course, the Jews had ceremonial Sabbaths as well. That was not the seventh day Sabbath. That could have fall, fell on the fourth day or the fifth day, just whenever it fell in the Jewish calendar. Um, and on this particular time, it was a ceremonial Sabbath. And, uh, and as they were celebrating on that last day, notice there in chapter 7 and in verse 37... Um, in that last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, Now before I go on with that, what the priests had just done, they had gone down to the Gihon Springs, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, had the privilege, for those who were here in Sabbath school this morning, I showed you a little snippet of Iran. I just went over to Iran, um, ancient Persia, and uh, had, a, had a look at some of the areas over there that coincided with Bible history. Um, also went over to Jordan and Israel. And so standing there in, in Jerusalem, we went down to the Gihon Springs. And what the priests would do on that, on that high day is that they would take their buckets down, get their water, come back up to the temple, and they would throw their, or, or, um, their water out of the buckets in front of the, the, the altar. And that was symbolic of two things. One was the, it, it reminded them um, of the, the rock that brought forth water while they were the, out there in the wilderness, uh, that God had blessed them, but also um, that they were to be a blessing to the entire world. And that's why they had this altar of sacrifice in the temple, uh, etc. And so when the priests had just throwing out that water in front of the altar, Jesus stands up there right in front of them, and that's where he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the Scripture has said. What Scripture? Now, you can imagine the scribes, the Pharisees, the Adventist leaders of the day were quite taken back with what Jesus had just said. He said, as the scripture has said, now they're thinking immediately because they're the Bible scholars of Avondale. Uh, they said, he's talking about Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 to 3, where God himself had proclaimed that he was the everlasting covenant. And now this guy, Jesus, he is claiming the same thing. Who does he think he is? And so Jesus there says, As the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And that sparked a, an outcry from the leaders on that day, on that particular day. And some, as the Bible goes on to say, I'm just going to paraphrase some of the story. Um, you can go home and read it for yourselves if you like. But some of them said, hey, we believe that this Jesus is the Messiah. And others weren't too sure. But definitely the leaders, or the majority of the leaders said, this guy, who does he think he is? He's just a chippy from Nazareth. And yet he's claiming to be, to be God. And so they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. In fact, it even says, if you back it up to... Uh, Chapter 7 and verse 30, the Bible says, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him. They wanted to take him, but nobody, nobody dared to touch him. Why? Because A, Jesus was a popular man. Even though he had his haters out there, he had a lot of lovers. And, uh, and so they thought, you know what, we want to get this guy, we want to take him out and kill him, but today is probably not the best time, otherwise we may end up in trouble ourselves. 
And so, and the Bible does go on to say there in verse 30, it says, because his hour was not yet come, and his hour hadn't yet come. He was still doing his ministry. Otherwise, it would have proved Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks, getting into the old Adventist theology, um, the, the, the 490 years, it, it, wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have happened. It, it, it would have crumbled as a prophecy. Because we know that in 31 AD, Jesus was crucified. He could not be crucified before or after that time. And so the Bible says that his hour had not yet come. And so it caused quite a stir in the temple. And then it finishes off there in chapter 7 in verse 53. And it says, and every man went unto his own house. Everybody went home. But in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, But Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. So everybody goes home, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why the Mount of Olives? Well, perhaps that was the home of Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. He spent a lot of time praying in the Mount of Olives to his Father. He spent a lot of time with his disciples teaching them about ministry. This was a place where Jesus could stand on the Mount of Olives and look over Jerusalem and, and, and his beloved city and his beloved people. And think about this. This is where Jesus ascended back to heaven, was on the Mount of Olives, on the eastern side. But this is the same place that Jesus is going to descend from heaven as well. In fact, the new Jerusalem is going to be sitting on the old Jerusalem today. That's where new Jerusalem will be, according to Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, or is it 4.14, one way or the other. And so Jesus, the Bible says, retired to the Mount of Olives. After a hard day, a big day like what Jesus had done, some people retire to the pubs, others will retire to the clubs, some retire back to their computers or to the beach, some even will retire to, to, to have an affair and not go home to their spouse. And that's in the church. Verse 2, the Bible says, And early in the morning he came again unto the temple. I mean, he wasn't going to give up. Jesus, he just finished telling everybody, If you thirst, come to me. I'm, I'm going to give you water that, that will never make you go thirsty. And he goes back into the temple the very next morning. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus goes back to the temple. And it was, I couldn't help but note, it says early in the morning. It was not midday, it was not in the afternoon. Early in the morning, all the people came to listen to Jesus. It's interesting. Oh, for more Seventh-day Adventists to rise early on a Sabbath morning. Amen? It would be lovely to see this church filled up like it is now at 20 past 9 or 9.30 in the morning. There is a blessing. The Sabbath goes from sunset to sunset, not just from 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the afternoon on the Sabbath. And these people, these Adventist people, got up early in the morning to go and have some devotion with Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were hungry for the Word and they wanted to learn from Christ the Master Teacher. Oh, for more early risers amongst Adventism today. We talk about lethargy and apathy in our lesson today. It took 13 years for these guys to just squander around doing their own thing. Nehemiah comes along, had, had done in 52 days what took them 13 years. 
We need movers and shakers in our church today. And we wonder why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so they all came early to listen to Christ. Verse 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. You know, um, it's funny. Imagine that, sitting in the temple, Barrel Church. All the people came to have devotion with Jesus. Jesus just sits down to start teaching the people, and lo and behold, the elders of the church bring this woman caught in adultery and set him in the midst. You know, F.B. Myers, a Christian writer and speaker, said it is a terrible thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of his fellow sinners. It is a terrible thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of his fellow sinners. It's a 2,000-year-old story. Think about this this story that we're about to go into. It's a 2,000-year-old incident. If you were to travel over in Europe now, you would find in many of these, um, what do you call them, museums or these uh, art galleries... Um, pretty much you're going to find this incident, a portrait, a picture of this lady that was caught in adultery. Perhaps you've even been to somebody's homes where you've seen it up on the wall where, where, where this woman is, is just falling at the feet of Jesus. She is humiliated and ashamed for what she has just committed for all the world to see. I mean, unbeknown to her, she didn't even know that this would be a, 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 a story that would be preached in, in, in not just the Adventist churches, but Christian churches all over the globe, 2,000 years old. And I know that this woman was prepared to be, or she was engaged to be married of, uh, back in those days. She was betrothed to be married. You know why? Because those who were betrothed to be married that were caught having an affair or in adultery, they were to be taken out and stoned, both of them, the man and the woman. They were to be stoned. We know that she was going to be stoned. If you were a married person, a married woman that was caught in adultery, you were to be strangled. And if you were the daughter of a high priest, then you you were to be burnt. And so this woman... Caught in adultery, Jesus is just having Sabbath school time with those who came early, and the elders brought this woman in because of adultery. God calls it adultery, we call it an affair. God calls it sin. Today we call it multi-friendly. Adultery is rife today. It violates God's laws, it destroys families, it upheaves children, it even leads to suicide. This woman was embarrassed, and you can well understand why she was embarrassed. Verse 3, the Bible says, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. In the very act. She was made to stand, the Bible says, in the midst, in the midst of all those who came for morning devotion. And back in those days, she was, as they do today, when somebody is caught in the act of adultery, they will strip them naked and have them on show for everybody. And I can't see it being any different for this lady 2,000 years ago. She wouldn't have even had time to get her clothes on. 
And she stood there in the midst of the church members. It's a shameful thing, this sin. It's shameful when you are exposed publicly. It's shameful when it is done in the open. Sin is shameful when it is done in secrecy. Sin is shameful when it is done from the heart. And it is certainly shameful when you're standing there in amongst all the church members. The scribes and the Pharisees, think about this. These were the leaders of the church of the day. These were guys that you just didn't mess around with if they knew a thing or two about Jewish law or Judaism. I mean, if you had a question about Judaism or about your faith or about your people or your ancestors or about what Moses wrote, you would bypass everybody to go and see the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, to even be a rabbi, you had to know word for word the first five books of the Bible. I don't know about you, but I'd struggle uh, memorizing the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 3. You had to know word for word, and if you could pronounce word for word the first five books of the Bible, then you were sent to the rabbinical schools. And that's where you went on to be a rabbi, the scribes and the Pharisees. So these guys knew a thing or two about the laws of Moses. Don't you worry about that. And so this poor woman, she didn't have a leg to stand on. And they knew what was in the laws of Moses. They knew that if a man and a woman were caught lying together, that they would be taken out and stoned or they would be executed. But something fishy was going on. They knew it was a capital offense. The lady knew it was a capital offense. Jesus Christ knew that it was a capital offense. And they knew that you must have witnesses. You couldn't just have two or three guys standing outside, see somebody enter a building, and sometime later they exit the building and say, right, they've committed adultery. They had to be caught in the very act. Now the question is, where was the man? Where was the man? Don't sit there and say to me that the man somehow just got away and they caught the woman. It just didn't work that way either. Where was the man? It was, it was a setup. It was a trap. They didn't care about the woman. Perhaps they had said to this guy, look, we're just going to set, set her up with this, with this woman that, that can't help herself, and then we're going to go test her against Jesus. And why did they have to go to Jesus? Why didn't they just take her down to the local courts or down to the local judges and get it sorted? Why take this woman to Jesus who was having morning devotion in church? Such was their hatred for Jesus. Don't forget, Jesus had already told them he was the great I am. He'd already told them the day before that whoever thirsts, come to me. I will give you rivers. I will flow out to you the blessings. And they couldn't stand it. So they would do, even commit murder. They would even commit murder to get at Jesus. That's how much they hated him. So in verse 5, the Bible says, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? What do you say? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. So the woman was trapped. 
The Lord Moses says that she should be stoned, Jesus, but what do you say? What do you say? The law condemned her. Nobody in the, in the church was going to stand up for this woman. And she knew she was gone because of these leaders. Well, what these guys, what they had forgotten, and the Bible does say that they brought her to Jesus, correct? They brought her to Jesus. You know, it's a wonderful thing when you hear testimonies about how people have brought people to Jesus. And then you see them baptized. But it's a very dangerous thing when you bring somebody to Jesus with evil motives. And such was the case with these guys. You see, what they didn't realize was that Jesus was the friend of notorious sinners. They represented the law. But in my understanding, this is where law met grace. Law met grace. And they came to grace and they said, the law says that this woman should be stoned. But what do you say, Mr. Grace? And they said that hoping to trap him or to accuse him. Why? Because if Jesus had said, well, um, guys, I think you're being a little harsh on her. Let her go. Well, if he had said that, then he would then be violating the laws of Moses, which would then put him into some serious trouble. If he said, go, away, go, go ahead and stone her, then they would, the first thing they would do is to run to the Roman authorities because only the Romans had the authority to execute somebody. That's why the Jews went running to the Romans to have Jesus put on the cross. They couldn't do it on their own. They had no right to do that. And so Jesus, unbeknown to them, was no ordinary teacher. In verse 6, the Bible says, They said this, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. Jesus stooped down when he left the courts of heaven. He stooped down in his ministry. He stooped when the man was laying there on the, on, the, on the pavement for 38 years trying to get into the water. And he healed him. He stooped when the disciples told the children to go away. But Jesus stooped down and put them on his lap. Jesus stooped down when Peter was sinking in the waters. And he said, Lord, save me. And all through the life of Jesus... He had been stooping for every man, woman, and child. The Bible says that Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. He wrote with his finger as though he didn't even hear what they had to say. Now, you know what my next question is, don't you? Well, perhaps you don't. What did he write? What did Jesus write when he stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground? I know of three places in the Bible where, th where, where uh, basically judgment 
was written with the finger of God. Do you remember the first? Of course, it was the Ten Commandments. <laughs> We're judged by the law of liberty. So we know that was the finger of God. He didn't even trust Moses to write that. Jesus wrote, or God wrote that himself. And then the second time was where? It was the writing on the wall in Belshazzar's banquet hall in, in, in Daniel chapter 5. Okay? That in itself was, was judgment. Uh, law and judgment. They had broken, broken the laws, and, and that very night, Belshazzar was slain by the, by, the, uh, by the Persians. And then the third time is this incident here, where Jesus stood down, stooped down, and he began writing as if he didn't even hear them. Notice, though, how these guys were very verbal in upsetting the, 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 the morning church devotion by making sure that everybody knew what this woman had done. They were very verbal, and it is very tempting to do that, isn't it, when somebody has done the wrong thing by you. It's very tempting to make sure that everybody knows about this person, that they have done the wrong thing, and we want the world to hear about it. But Jesus says he stood down, and he wrote in the ground with his finger as if he didn't even hear them. I mean, Jesus could have, he could have, because he knew what these guys were like. He could have said, you know what? Let's go tit for tat here. I'm going to call a media. I want the cameraman here. I want some, somebody go out and get some posters done, put them around the telegraph poles, and uh, let's get the word out, because I'm going to have a good shot at you to bring you guys down for what you're doing against this woman. But Jesus didn't do that. Even in the face of his adversaries, Jesus remained silent. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up. It's interesting here that not only did Jesus stoop for this woman, because when he stooped for her, he stooped below the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He stooped below the people that had come to listen to his morning devotion. He even stooped below the woman that was accused for this adultery. And he had to have because he had to put his finger in the ground. But here we see that not only did Jesus stoop down for this lady, he stood up for her as well. Nobody else was going to stand up for her. But the Bible says that when he had finished writing, Jesus stood up. He lifted himself. And this is what he said. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at he who is without sin, you be the first one to cast the stone. He stood up for this woman. You know, it's interesting because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, it speaks about, you know, the, the consequences of those who uh, commit adultery. And they have various, um, uh, depending on the nature of, of the, uh, the sin committed, would depend on the judgment that they would receive as well. And... Um, and if it was, yeah, both the men and the women, the man and the woman, if they were caught, they were both to be stoned. That's why I asked before, well, where was the man? Takes two to tango, as they say. You had to have witnesses. And those first two to three witnesses were the ones that could cast the stone. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 17. But it also says in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it talks about those, if you are proven to be false, if you have um, done some um, 
uh, what's it, you know, if you've had evil motives and you've been dishonest and there has been trickery involved, then the judgment will be turned on you. And so Jesus said, he who is without sin, he who is without dishonesty, he who is without trickery, he who is here without any evil motives, you be the first to cast the first stone. But don't you worry, mark my words, if you are found false, it'll go on you. So Jesus stoops again in verse 8. And he wrote on the ground, the Bible says. I wonder what he wrote. Perhaps, perhaps, you know, we know the two great commandments of the Ten Commandments is love God, first four commandments, and love your fellow man, last six. Perhaps God mm, really tackled the issue of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Because adultery was rife back in their times too. That's why Jesus stood up and he said, you adulterous nation. He called them that. He knew what was going on in their lives. And I guarantee you, through the Holy Spirit, he allowed Jesus to know exactly what their sins were. Well, that's an assumption you may say. Perhaps it was. But whatever he wrote, whatever he wrote, it must have convicted these guys. That we do know. The Bible goes on to say, And they which heard it, in verse 9, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And that's the way they did it. Uh, Those who were witnesses, and then they would go from the eldest to the last or to the youngest to do the stoning. So they understood the laws of Moses, all right? And so the, the credit that I will give to these guys, at least, at least they acted on their conscience. At least they listened to conviction. I mean, they weren't just dealing with an ordinary teacher here. They were dealing with the master. And he knew how to put them in their place without saying anything. Except for this. And Jesus was left alone. Last part of verse 9. And the woman standing in the midst. The end, the accusers had left this woman And when Jesus stood up and looked around, he saw it was just him alone and the woman. My friends, we too will be left alone one day to face Jesus Christ. We have many accusers in the world today. And for some reason, some of us may be guilty like this woman was. And some of us may be innocent, but we'll be deemed guilty in the eyes of the world. But either way, we will be standing face to face with Jesus one day. There is a judgment coming. But here this woman was standing in the midst. The people were in the church, in the temple. And it just goes to show, my friends, if ever there are things going on in your life or my life, some of the best places to be is right there in the midst of God's people. When things aren't going too well, when there is sin going on in your life, and you feel so low, you feel so ashamed, you feel so embarrassed, that you feel that when you step foot in the church, that some bolt of lightning is going to come down and strike you dead. 
I don't know what your sins are. All I know is that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. I don't know what your sins are or have been or about to be. But here, the one who had the right to stone this woman to death was the one who stood there and gave her grace. The one who had the right to put her to death and to put her to open shame says this in verse 10. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. You know, there is no sinner too far away from Jesus. The only problem we have is that we don't admit our sins. (laughs) Sometimes we're even too embarrassed about that. But Jesus asked this woman, where are your accusers? But her forgiveness was instant. Salvation was instant. She looked to Jesus in faith. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you under one condition. And what was that condition? Go and sin no more. That was the, so it was conditional. Let's not get into this cheap, cheap grace. We just think that we can keep on doing what we want to do for the rest of our lives because we're under grace. The only way that you can have grace is because we've transgressed the law, right? So when we transgress the law, we stand outside the law. Now we're in need of grace so that we can come back in under the law because there is no condemnation for those who walk in the law. The law of love. Soon as you step outside of that by transgression, then we need grace. And for those who run around that say, look, the the laws were done away with, we're just saved by grace. I mean, if that's the case, then then we didn't really need uh, Jesus in the first place. Because if we can just keep on doing what we do until Jesus comes, then what's the point of grace? What's the point of Jesus? It was just a waste of time, him coming down to die for our sins. And so Jesus says, go and sin. In other words, go and commit, do not go and commit that sin anymore. You may have other sins that you're going to struggle with in life. You may have your shortfalls. Praise God for 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Because if we do sin... Praise God, we have a what? An advocate who's going to raise us up and say, come on, let's keep going. You overcame that sin. You overcame this sin. You overcame this sin. But there's some more that you've got to have. Come on, let's keep on going. And that's the way Jesus encourages us, just like a father to a boy. When my little boy, my youngest one, when he was walking over the rocks was one Sabbath afternoon, we went for a little walk over the rocks to look for crabs and whatever else he wanted to look for. And every now and then he would fall over. Well, what did you think I would do, you know, just as the father? Get up yourself. Is that what I said? Of course not. The first thing I did was I leant down, grabbed him, picked him up, let him keep walking until he stumbled again. I'd lean down, pick him up until he... You know, what sort of a father would that be? You do it yourself. Tide's coming in. No, you help yourself. You fell over, you do it. Imagine that. 
And unfortunately, that's how people in the world, even amongst Christians, view our Heavenly Father. We only view our Heavenly Father like that is because perhaps our earthly Father was not the way He ought to have been to some of us here. We get this concept that our Heavenly Father is like our earthly Father, therefore we want nothing to do with our Heavenly Father. Go and sin no more. She deserved judgment, but God gave her forgiveness. The woman, woman in the church is symbolic, isn't it, of the church. Uh, the woman is symbolic of a church, or the church is symbolic of a woman. And uh, remember, I had my two hours of fame with uh, Pastor Mark Finley uh, a number of years ago. He had a bad back, and I was working in the Victorian Conference. So the president at the time came in and said, hey, look, Dwayne, can you take Mark Finley down to the chiropractor. Yeah, sure. So I jumped at that opportunity. I had a great talk with Mark Finley. I really appreciate him, respect his, his views and his, his, his uh, ministry. And, um, and I, we were having a good chat about some of the, the, the issues, the concerns that we have in, in God's church, God's beloved church. And he said, Dwayne, he said, the church is like Noah's ark. I said, oh, what do you mean by that? He said, you know, when Noah and his family jumped on board that ark and the door closed, nobody could open it because that was the angel of the Lord, closed that door and it was sealing time. Nobody, they couldn't even get out that boat. He said, can you imagine with all those animals, no sewage pipes, no nothing, the stench that it would have created in that boat. He said, imagine if they said, Noah and his family said, you know what, we can't handle the smell in this boat. Let's just jump out, jump off the boat. He said, if they jumped off the boat, they would have drowned. He said, it's a little bit like that in God's church. He said, sometimes you're going to see in the church that things stink. He said, just put a peg on your nose. And he said, you'll get by. He said, he said, because if you jump off, he said, you'll spiritually drown. And I thought it was a good analogy. He said, so, so the point is, friends, you might have an adulterous woman or an adulterous man in this church. I don't know. Um, you, you might have somebody that's doing things that aren't quite kosher. But let's not pick up stones and be the first two or three witnesses to cast at each other. Sometimes in churches, there will be families sitting on this side because this family is sitting on that side and those two families just don't get along. So let's drop our stones and let's show the forgiveness and the grace that Jesus showed to this woman that day. And then it finishes off in verse 12 where we started. Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's like that morning, Jesus has this congregation, has morning devotion. Some of these leaders brought this woman and a sinner. She'd done everything wrong. And uh, Jesus worked through that with everybody. You could imagine if you were sitting there as that congregation, you would have just been all like, what's, what's going to happen here? Until finally, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now he had a convert in the congregation, there was one extra person added to that group in the space of 12 verses. You know, in the temple, by the time of Herod and Jesus, they had what was known as the court of women. This is where the treasury was. Do you remember that woman that came in with her two little mites, threw them in the thing and took off? That's where Jesus took this sermon, this devotion, because it was there that the priests every day during the, 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 the Feast of Tabernacles, they had these massive four huge columns in the court of women. 
And the priests would go up the ladder and they would keep that lit for seven or eight days to keep it lit up. And that's where Jesus stood, looked at these and said, I am the light of the world. The day before, I am the water of life because they threw the buckets of water. This time Jesus has come down from the altar, down the steps into the court of women and he says, I am the light of the world. My friends, as I finish, how serious are you and I following Jesus Christ as our saviour? Are we like the disciples who just dropped everything at once to follow Jesus? If you're in a saving relationship, good. If you're struggling, here's what I recommend we do. Um, Do what the woman did. Stand face to face with the light of life. And the darkness will be forever extinguished. Amen. This message was made available by the Barrel Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit barreladventist.church.
That was Marvelous Grace by Fountain View Academy. Coming up next from the album Give Him Glory by 3ABN, this is the More Than Wonderful medley.
Let's listen to Bill Ackland as he reads from his book, Talking with God. The title for the prayer today is Another Day, Another Year, A Birthday. And the text to go with this is from 2 Samuel 23 verse 4. He shall be to his people like the morning light. When the sun shows its face to the world and like a fresh new day without clouds in the sky, like new grass shoots in the springtime, reflecting the raindrops after the showers. So let us pray. I felt the soft sand giving way beneath my feet down at the beach today, dear Lord. Sand makes that curious device, the hourglass work, as grain by grain, minute by minute, the days become a year and I find myself celebrating another birthday. A year older, or only another day beyond yesterday. However we humans measure off our time, O Lord, you in your great eternity look down upon your earthly family as we frantically fulfil appointments dictated to us by the clock. We rush here and there, working eight or ten hours, then wend our way home, only to fall into an easy chair, pondering on what we've accomplished that day and hoping it will have some meaning, some life beyond the hundreds of minutes spent in our activities. Birthdays mean something to us, dear Lord, for when we are young, they tell us that we are that much closer to a significant age we thought we would never reach. 18, 21, so far away when only a tender 10. But then, before we know it, the decades and not just the years are ticked off now and we find we have boarded a rocket ship and not a sailboat. Of course, every minute, every day, every year of our lives are of exactly equal length. So the passing years are not the problem, if we view these as a problem at all. It must be a trick of the mind that gives us a different perspective on birthdays. Young or older, dear Father, the good thing about a birthday is that we are reminded you have been with us, guiding us, prompting us, helping us through another year. We receive some cards, good wishes and expressions of love. And in these, we know you love us too. Thank you, Lord, for another day, another birthday. In your name, Amen. To obtain your copy of Talking With God, written by Bill Ackland, give us a call in Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Hi, I'm Marilyn, the two-tip lady, who loves to give you tips to make life more simple. Did you ever play with a magnet at school? Wasn't it fun running around trying to find the unexpected things that your magnet would attract? 
You know, a couple of days ago, I couldn't resist pulling out a bike and sneaking off before breakfast, imagining that when I returned, I'd brag about how I went for a ride to dear husband and son, who would undoubtedly both be so proud of my achievement and jealous that they hadn't come with me. It was my first ride in years. Well, I discovered that I can ride just great. Downhill. (laughs) But uphill. Oh, oh, no way. Well, the legs will just have to get stronger. No bragging yet. Now, when you ride in the bush, I bet you don't attract all the extras that I did. I discovered that morning that I was a magnet. Grandkids galore, already on bikes. And one little, not even two-year-old fellow who has strong legs followed me, but his wheels weren't quite so efficient. Like a magnet, I attracted garden produce to take home to make my rising bread at home feel like it was really in good company. Persimmons. Oh, yum. Have you ever had them? The kind you can crunch into and eat the skin and all without having your mouth go all puckered up and sour? No, just delicioso. I attracted crisp rhubarb to throw in a pot with some apples for breakfast. And the very first lemonades of the year. Oh, don't you love lemonades straight off the tree? These were shared so generously for us. I love lemonades and I love being a lemonade magnet. And I attracted the most munchy, crunchy cucumber you'll ever eat straight off the vine onto the plate for lunch. Chinese cabbage to dice finely and drizzle my homemade delicious tahini dressing over, along with a few tender sprouts. What a marvellous reward I had for my push bike labours and for being a magnet. Though my uphill labours were exhausting, it was fun collecting the unexpected along the way. What fun to be a magnet. Do you want two tips to ensure that you become a magnet too? First, here it is. Do something you don't usually do. And unexpected and delightful things will come your way. Try it and see. And tip number two is do it often so your muscles and mind develop happily and strong. You never know what surprises are going to accompany you home or what fun you're going to have along the way. Two simple tips. What are they? Do something you don't usually do and do it often. These are tips that will make your life more simple and happy. So that's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to share tips to help make your life more simple. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.